0: This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. (laughs) Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about Orchid. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now, because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at OrchidHealth.com. Hey, everybody. Uh this is Razib Khan with the Unsupervised Learning podcast and I am here today with a very special guest. Uh I am here with uh an author, uh cultural evolutionist. I think I, I would say evolutionist in general, uh Michael Mukta Krishna. He's joining me from London and he has a book, uh Theory of Everyone, the new science of who we are, how we got here and where we're going. Um I'm going to give a, a quick um I don't know heads up to uh the listeners here who are going to be reading the book i hope which many of you will uh that this is uh it's a big book uh the title is a big title and uh and it really does describe kind of like the book's um scope and range um you know it's quick read so you know i hope you guys check it out but um michael uh before we go on uh talk about your affiliations And then work back a little bit to your biography in terms of your disciplinary background, but also maybe a little bit about your cultural background, um, because, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. You did put a lot of that stuff in there, and I didn't know any of it. And, uh, you know, I think it actually does inform and color some aspects uh, of your work. I mean, look, our background always does inform our work in some ways, but some of it was actually kind of direct, I felt. So can you just get into that a little bit first? So, uh, I'm, a, I'm a professor
1: at the London School of Economics uh, in economic psychology, but I have affiliations in developmental economics at Stickard uh, and in data science. I also wear a few other hats. So, I'm the co founder and the technical director of the Database of Religious History, which I think at this point is the largest quantitative database of history. Um, and I'm also a board member at uh, One Pencil, which is a, a philanthropic project that. Binds the research that we do uh, with um, with philanthropic work in education in Namibia and Angola and Bolivia. Uh, yeah, sorry. Do you want me to – yeah, you were asking. Uh, it's
0: a really quick question because um, I, I – is that the um, the – the Turchin faction or the non-Turchin faction—that is the that's a
1: history we don't need to get into—but uh, that is the non-Turchin faction.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> then go on. Sorry, not you just triggered me, so I had to like ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I gotta have a podcast about about um that type of work at some point because I'm super interested in that actually too. But um, but I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm sure Peter doesn't let me say this, but I mean the project was born out of kind of disagreements between the two factions. But I was a at the time, a second-year grad student who is, you know, loosely involved, though, someone involved in that in that
0: split. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, you have all these affiliations, and you know, um, your academic background and your academic work is quite multidisciplinary. You're associated so, with a lot, of, a lot. Sorry, for yeah. one, I, I forgot to mention one.
1: Um, so I'm I'm also uh, a CFI Israeli Global Scholar in the Boundaries Membership and Belonging Group. That's the Canadian yeah advanced research
0: okay yeah yeah. Uh, so you're so you know i wanted to bring this up and i want to talk a little bit also more about your um like you know i i don't really know um well, how do i say this i mean you're a third culture kid maybe oh, that's great uh, okay so i guess i, I like i said yeah because i i so just to, to give some context um i've never talked to michael before i don't know you personally although we know a lot of people Uh, Like, you know, I know people who've been postdocs with you. I know your advisor, not personally, but I've done podcasts with him. And so I was at UC Davis and, you know, I actually did, uh, I'm an evolutionary geneticist by training, but I did sit in with Peter Richardson and when McElrath was uh, back at Davis. So uh, just for the listener out there, we have a lot of mutual contacts, Um, but I didn't know like what you're not, I mean, I, I mean, I heard you talk, you sound like an American to me, but I was like, wait a second, like he's in England and uh, you, I think you went to grad school in BC, and so yeah. like, just talk talk a little bit about that um, because I also think that 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 along with your educational professional training, which is not, um, you haven't been like a straightforward like you know undergrad biology or psychology, and then going to grad school to study. I mean, first of all, uh, there wasn't really cultural evolution in grad school. Until, like, very recently. So go on and talk a little bit about both of those.
1: Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, these stories sometimes make sense in hindsight, but it does seem to me like my interests are very much shaped by my uh, unusually diverse childhood. So I, my family's from Sri Lanka, uh, and I was born there, and I left when I was uh, two years old. And we grew up in Bot- I grew up in Botswana. Um, and that was a really interesting time to be in Botswana because uh, this was in the early 90s. Uh, so, you know, I really saw South Africa, for example, which Botswana is just the northern neighbor. I saw it kind of pre and post apartheid. You know, I remember as a kid, uh, all of the excitement around uh, Mandela getting voted in and the, the, the shift away from apartheid, all of that hope and promise, and then also kind of the the difficulties in meeting uh, the, that promise. And, of course, we know what South Africa is like today. Um and so then after that, uh, we lived in Australia briefly, but then we were in Papua New Guinea, and uh, I, I seem to continue to find myself in interesting situations because that was uh, we were there doing a, a pretty important episode in, in Papua New Guinea's history, uh, which was referred to as the Sandline Affair. So this was a this was a government coup where uh, the then gov- uh, Prime Minister Julius Chan he brought in mercenaries because of a uh, revolt basically uh, from the army. And this did not go down well. And so, you know, we lived about 500 yards from Parliament House. And, like, you know, as a kid, I'm watching, like, folks in AK, uh, carrying um, M16s, you know, driving down and uh, heading to Parliament House to basically try to oust Julius Chan. So it was terrifying, but also, like, it, it shapes you. Um, and, you know, then we lived in, I lived in Australia, and then I went to grad school, as you said, in at, in, at UBC, uh, British Columbia, and then my postdoc was at Harvard. And then I found myself to the UK. Um, in the book, I kind of tell the story because all of this there were there were aspects of this that really shaped my my experience. So um, in undergrad, i I was always interested in big questions, and you know i got I got really good grades. And I was I think one of the top five hundred students in the country, and so I had like pretty much anything I could have studied. I was like, what do I want to do with my life? And so I was, I was like, well, I want to. I'd like to tackle something big, like something in physics or philosophy or you know human behavior or something but i'm also i'm kind of risk averse or at least i like to manage risk so i'm like you know all of these careers are great but they're not necessarily stable so i should pick something that's a little bit more secure so i'm like i'm going to do med or i'm going to do law or i'm going to do you know finance or i'm going to do engineering and because i traveled so much and i intended to keep doing that i was like well engineering is probably the the most flexible of those careers so I ended up majoring in. Uh, I did a dual degree where I majored in in uh, computer and software, and uh, then I also um, basically took a wide array of other courses. Um, in I ended up majoring in psychology, but you know I took like econ, I took biology, I sat in on like you know philosophy and physics and um, political science, and I was really just trying to trying to solve a problem that I'd seen in the world, and that problem was that. We didn't seem to really understand culture very well. So if you, you know, if you're a kid, a third culture kid, as you described it, you grow up in all these different places. You realize that people around the world they are fundamentally the same, in that you know we reproduce, we eat food, we are animals, right? Um, but we also see the world very differently, and our cultures are completely different. We are running different software, and you know, at the time, um, you know, we left. You know, Sri Lanka was in the middle of a of a civil war between two ethnicities that to me like as a kid i didn't know there were different ethnicities right like i'm like these are brown people and oh they they don't like each other i'm not sure what this is about and i mean like one hilarious story is like i remember as a kid hearing that like a lot of wars were fought over oil and uh you know this was this was uh george H. W. bush you know that, that kind of time um and i was like maybe this is what's going on here. I have noticed like some people seem to use oil in their hair more than the other group. So maybe this is what the fight is all about. It's it's ultimately about oil. Uh, and then I realized, oh, these are like two groups that f- from the outside, and even to me, they seem like the same people and they, they're they at each other's throats, the Tamils and the Sinhalese. Why is that? And then of course, you know, being in in Botswana where you've got kind of South Africa, uh, you've got all this ethnic conflict, and then you got Botswana that's like quite stable, very successful. What's happening there? And then New Guinea where you have – a place that looked like Australia in terms of its parliamentary institutions, but completely uh, not achieving the the kind of outcomes that Australia was. And massive amounts of tribalism where they have like Pidgin as a common language, but really, you know, even my friends at school, like they, they speak very different languages. I think it's the most uh, linguistically diverse place on earth. So, yeah. yeah you trying to reconcile this. Uh, I can keep going. I can tell my no.
0: I, it's so you are. Um, you know, your the people you work with or are often associated with his authors. Yeah. Uh, was was Manvi Singh – Was he? Yeah. A he was. A, he, was a, he was a. He was a grad student when I was a postdoc at Harvard. Yeah, and so he's 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 been on this podcast, and they're often anthropologists. And as I was reading your book, I thought, whoa, he was he he was already trained as an anthropologist before he like was an adult yeah right I right. mean to say <laughs> I mean, you were literally in Papua New Guinea where a lot of anthropologists go because of cultural
1: diversity yeah really you know, so as, as, yeah. as a kid, you know as a kid, I remember uh, like a one of the pivotal moments or like a real moment that I remember was when I met um uh, the bushmen like the Kung San in the Kalahari. like we used to go camping in the Kalahari all the time and often your 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 car gets stuck one time it was stuck like really bad. and so we you know another car passed by they tried to help us out. we're like we're gonna have to get some folks to like help lift this thing out. And they're like, we know. I know a community who lives nearby. So off they went. And we had all these Bushmen just come by and they're hanging out with us. And we lift the car out. Well, obviously, I was a kid. I wasn't doing this, but uh, paid them with a bottle of Johnny Walker and whatever snacks we had. Uh, but just hanging out and realizing like, oh, man, people around the world are very different. And if you live in one place, you just don't see that. And so much foreign policy, so much uh, international relations, all of this is based on flawed premises, flawed assumptions about the world that are that are they're overlaid on other peoples who think very differently
0: yeah yeah let me um i want to mention something really quickly um this is not part of the notes so uh you know we'll get back into it but um actually two days before we're recording this uh paper just came out i think it's in cell um it's titled reconstructing the population history of sinhalese the major ethnic group in sri lanka Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I've been waiting for a paper about Sri Lanka for a while because we have Sri Lanka Tamil samples. are part of the Thousand Genomes. A lot of listeners will know that. Uh, but we haven't had any um, Sinhalese samples forever. And so just so the listeners know, um, Sri Lanka is multi-ethnic. Uh, there's a lot of you know, small ethnicities, which I'm not going to mention here, like the Moors and other things. Um that are mentioned in the paper. But um, you know, what Michael's talking about, there's the Sinhalese uh who speak an Indo-European language, uh Indo-Aryan language. Uh they're most of the island, they're Buddhist mostly. Uh, and then you have um the, the Tamils of Sri Lanka, who've been there for a long time as well, the Sri Lanka Tamils, as opposed to the migrant group. So let's separate that out. And these two groups have been fighting. The Tamils are mostly Hindu, although some of them are Christian too. Um, and then obviously there was some Dutch, um, you know, colonial period and Michael, you mentioned that you have some Dutch ancestry. So a lot of people in Sri Lanka have like, oh, a little bit of Dutch, a little bit of Portuguese and stuff like that. And, um, you know, you're Brown, you know, you, I mean, I've, I've talked to people from Sri Lanka before, especially people who are Buddhists and Hales, and, you know. I don't get it, but, like, they think they're very different than other people that look just like them from the mainland, which is fine. Like, actually, you are quite different. Like, if you look at the social – if you look at the vital stats, uh, Sri Lanka is much more developed, candidly. Its HDI is much higher, even though they look just – people in Sri Lanka look just like people to the north on the mainland. The HDI is much different. It's obviously mostly a Buddhist island, uh, Theravada Buddhist, um, and all that stuff. Okay. Um, But, like, these two groups are engaging in a pretty intense violence – Um, You know, Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, was killed in a suicide bombing that was fomented or, you know, underwritten, I guess I would say, by the Tamil Tigers, who, you know, kind of popularized suicide bombing, actually. Um, They were the innovators, Uh, just like Arabic numerals are are actually originally from Indian subcontinent. um, You know, suicide bombing was pioneered (laughs) by, by Indian people before it was taken up by other populations, you know? So there's some serious violence here um, i don 't want to get into the political issues, but uh, you know you could say genocide there was a recent civil war that ended with a lot of conflict, so these people look look very similar to each other, so it must be a little confusing and uh you know uh, mainland, there was a partition where Muslims and Hindus um you know if you guys want to look at the like some ma- massive body counts um you know we're talking millions of people might have died uh, in the late nineteen forties you know uh and the, again, these are people. Uh, you know, Pakistan, India border on both sides of the border, there are people who look uh pretty much the same. They're ethnically Punjabi. On the other side, there's Bengal, where my family's from, although there wasn't as much violence in 47 for various contingent reasons, like you can watch the movie Gandhi to understand some of that. But in Sri Lanka in particular, I just want to say, um, I've looked at some of the genetic data from the Sri Lankan Tamils, and they look a little different than mainland people, um, Tamils from the mainland, because there seems to be less population structure. So in the Indian subcontinent, there's a lot of population structure, so you can have a village, uh, a village in India where people are genetically different as Finns or Sicilians because of the caste structure. Um, that doesn't seem as evident in Sri Lanka. Um, From the tentative stuff I've seen today, this paper pretty much confirms it. There's actually very little genetic difference between the Sri Lanka Tamils and the Sinhalese. They're almost the same people. So there's been gene flow that's been recurrent and continuous for thousands of years, but they've maintained their distinctiveness because of their language and uh, the religion. And actually, I think some of the kings of Kandy and the highlands, like they were actually from Tamil dynasties, but they ended up becoming Buddhist and obviously. Promoting that Buddhist Sinhalese identity, so uh, that's just uh, some, something actually quite distinctive from the mainland, uh, where there's a lot more population structure, and you have these Jati Varna communities. And there is something like that in Sri Lanka, but um, you know, a cultural anthropologists will tell you that it's much more attenuated, and it's quite clear in the genetic data that's just come out right now. Also, a minor separate note: um, there's been arguments about. The Sinhalese language and the Sinhalese people that supposedly came from North India originally, whether they were from the east uh, towards Bengal or Udisha or the west, Gujarat or, uh, you know, the Konkan coast. And genetically, um, there are now IBD segments, identity by descent. Uh, in the Sinhalese samples that they have in this paper, that indicate that they're from the Konkan coast, that they're from the west. So, um, you know, here, you know, not to be an imperialist, but here comes genetics uh, solving another issue for historical linguistics. Uh, you know, because um, you yeah. know that, that's what we do here. So I just want to bring that up because um, you know you were confused as a kid about this, um, and I think a lot of people are. Like you know, come on, like. Can't we just all get along? No, we can't. Um, And the reason we can't get along is actually part of, um, I think, um, the topics in your book, um, which, you know, there is a lot of cultural evolution in there. We're cooperative species, but the flip side of cooperation is intergroup competition and intergroup conflict. And I've had David Sloan Wilson on his podcast multiple times, um, you know, so I think a lot of listeners, they know where I'm going with that. But um, this book is actually not – a cultural evolution book in that traditional way—that's definitely part of the book. Um, in the beginning, and I want to get to this uh, because you know part of your background is as an engineer, and there's a lot of engineer thinking throughout this book. Um, and there are parts of it where I think this would not be written this way if it wasn't written by someone who was trained as an engineer to think in terms of tradeoffs, inputs, outputs. Uh, do some like rough back of the envelope calculations as a matter of course. Um, And so can you talk about um, the energy revolutions? Because this is actually a book, uh, a lot about energy, um, which, you know, that might sound a little strange. You mentioned oil. Um, So, uh, you know, there's some like themes that are recurring here. Talk about the importance of energy, because uh, in a way, that's the beginning and the end of the book, even though there's a lot of other details in the middle.
1: Yeah. I mean, at first I want to comment on that because it's something I've noticed. And so my, my advisor, Joe Henrik is also trained as an engineer. And I really only noticed this when I, when I used to talk to him as a scientist, you're trained to kind of think about a particular problem, but as an engineer, you can never think about a problem in isolation. Like you always have to be able to zoom in and out of the system to understand how it connects to everything else. Cause otherwise the whole thing breaks. And I think, you know, as a scientist trained, as a, like as scientists, both of us trained as engineers, we see the world a little bit differently, but let me get back to the energy question. So, um, I started thinking about energy uh, through the lens of cooperation, actually. So one of the things I work on is uh, is how it is that humans live in the world today, where anonymous strangers from different parts of the world can live side by side in relative peace. And you know, as as some as some listeners may know, this is this is a question that uh, cuts across economics and psychology and evolutionary biology. And in two thousand and five, Science Magazine listed it as one of its top twenty five questions for the coming decade. And since then, uh, a lot of the focus has been on identifying the mechanisms that allow cooperation to to persist. So you, you probably know some of these, like kin selection, inclusive fitness, genes that can you know identify and favor copies of themselves, Rb greater than C. Um, if you want me to you know get into anything in particular, or just stop me, but otherwise I'm just going to keep going. Um,
0: Actually, so- uh, really quickly, you dropped an equation in there. You should tell them what. You know Hamilton. Yeah, so, you know so you know so this is
1: this is the uh, this is this is the e equals mc squared of evolutionary biology, uh, by by Bill Hamilton, and the idea is that genes that can identify and favor copies of themselves, where the relatedness between uh, uh, individuals times the the benefit is greater than the cost to the individual, will persist. So for this reason, you know, a, a lion will come in and kill all the cubs of the previous lion, like kick them out, take the take the mate. But they won't kill their own cubs. So across the animal kingdom, we see this kind of uh, um, favoritism of family. Let's put it that way. Love of family. Of course, you know, that limits cooperation to to related individuals. Now, you can get a little further through uh, reciprocal altruism, direct reciprocity, peer punishment, call it what you want. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. But uh, likewise, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So you might not like all the people you interact with with your office, but you're going to you're gonna swap favors because you're going to see them again. You have repeated encounters, you swap favors, and that's a kind of cooperation. But again, it's among people who know each other and regularly interact. And then, you know, so you can get a little further through indirect reciprocity that, the, you know, the rest of us call reputation, which is, you know, I don't know who Razib is, but, you know, I know he hangs around mutual people. And so via that reputation, I'm like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go on Razib's show. That sounds good um that's reputation still exists and you know this is foreshadowing uh, some of the stuff in the book but not only does it still exist but it was the dominant form of cooperation for a long time if you've ever watched vikings you know it's like i do this for my name um then you know getting 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 beyond that you know if you ask an, uh, if you ask a, a, one of my uh, economist colleagues he said you know what is it that allows countries today to succeed they'll say it's institutions You know, it's not that we're, you know, we're reputationally punishing each other left, right, and center or going after it directly. We pay our taxes to a government, a judiciary, a police force, and that's what does it for us. Problem solved, it seemed, right? So one of my contributions to this literature was to say, hang on, hang on, hang on a second, all right? You've got all these mechanisms, and the lower forms are more stable and found across the animal kingdom, but they all exist at the same time. Plus, if you've lived in these kinds of places around the world, you know that institutions, the same institutions, like why is Australia so much wealthier than and more successful than Papua New Guinea, despite both having Westminster parliamentary system institutions, right? Why is Botswana more successful than South Africa? Like, why? Um, and so the reason, as I explain, is that those lower scales of cooperation undermine the higher scales under many conditions. And we call this corruption. So, you know, when a president gives a job to his son, you know, organizes something, he'll be like, oh, yo, that's nepotism. But it's also inclusive fitness or kin selection undermining institutions. If a person gives a job to a a friend or a friend of a friend, we're like, oh, that's cronyism. But equally, it's direct or indirect reciprocity undermining our meritocracy. Fine. So now we're in this new situation. We're like, all right, so the the lower scales are undermining the higher scales. Then how the hell are we getting to the higher scales? Like, why is it that some places actually are successful? So as I kind of was, you know, was looking at the math, working through these models, I was like, hang on, whenever we build these game theoretic models, we intentionally create a trade-off. But it's also quite possible, and it's true, that there is no trade-off in many things that we do. There are win-wins to be had. Sometimes when I collaborate on a paper or build a company with someone else, I can go further together with this person. I can do more than I would on my own. So why is that? Well, the rewards and what matters are the rewards and how easy it, what the probability of getting those rewards are. All right, let's zoom to the present day. In the present day, we live in you know let's take the last couple hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, the most peaceful and prosperous time. Any by any metric you look at of progress, you know, uh, size of polities, um, child child survival rates, uh, wealth, uh, whatever you want. There was a massive takeoff after the Industrial Revolution that, as Ian Morris puts it, makes a mockery of everything that came before, like the Black Death, um, the Scientific Revolution, the Renaissance. These are these are blips. They they didn't touch any of these, you know, relative to what happened after the Industrial Revolution. So the argument that I make, or, or the only thing that could really have done this, and if you look across the history of life, you'll see this too, is energy. So what happens is there's a key metric in the energy sciences called uh, the energy return on energy investment or energy return on investment, EROI, e- right? Uh, so this is the amount of energy it takes to get some amount of energy back. It's another term for – or you might call it just excess energy. And excess energy is what we cooperate for. It's what we're competing over. That is what ultimately you know we want. So what happened was that during the Industrial Revolution, there was a bunch of stored sunlight in the ground in the form of coal – and oil and natural gas. And, you know, the cheap and available coal in Britain meant that they could, with new technologies, industrialize. And they could use that energy to become the largest empire the world had ever seen. So a little corner of Eurasia, the backwater, you know, the time of the Roman Empire, um, Eurasia has a nice big collective brain. That little corner, now energized by a a bunch of cheap and available coal, was able to cooperate at a scale where they could outcompete other... Uh, civilizations without that level of energy um, uh, capture and without that level of cooperation as a result. And that pushed us into a brand new world. And so if you look at, you know, so we've built some models on this since then. And if you look, basically the level of cooperation that is attainable is the level at which the returns per individual, per person, per per cell, whatever, is higher than it would be in a smaller group or a larger group. So if we're in a market where I can, you know, or, you know, we're trying physicists, they don't want to have thousands of people to do physics. It would be better to win a Nobel prize all by yourself. But if you want a large Hadron Collider, you're going to have to do this with thousands of others. If you want to start a business, you want, like, if you could do it all by yourself and keep all the equity to yourself, you would do it, but you can't, so you got to work with some other people. You got to get some VCs involved. You got to, you know, align with other, you have to cooperate in other words, but only if the reward per founder per employee per whatever is larger than it would be in a smaller or larger group and evolution is how we find this right like companies with too many employees go bust too few they don't succeed they fail right and you know in the book i really take you know maybe a little indulgently uh, please feel free to skip this if it bores you but you know i go all the way back to the evolution of life itself this is exactly what happened so at the very beginning um you know, you had the moon sloshing the the warmed waters, uh, you know, across the land and back and forth. And, you know, probably I suspect like an RNA world hypothesis, you had self-replicators that eventually become life, right? And early life is reliant on the energy of the sun and, you know, maybe uh, volcanic heat or something like that. But over time, first you get... Uh, you get efficiencies in how you use that energy. So you get innovations in that kind of efficiency, and eventually you get proto photosynthesis turning into proper photosynthesis, where the sun, the sunlight, the photosynthetic uh, process results in little chemical batteries, little chemical sugars, ATP. And this means that there's a new thing that evolution can exploit. So new larger organisms cannot; they don't have to just worry about taking energy directly from the sun. They can eat other organisms, right? And again, it's it's constrained by the amount of excess energy that's available. So again, you know, this is a pattern that ex- it applies to cells and societies. It applies to bacteria and businesses. And there have been clear revolutions in the history of our species that have pushed us forward. And they, each one of them was an energy revolution. So the first of those was like fire, right? Um, the most compelling evidence for cultural evolution in my mind is the fact that we have a bunch of... Uh, uh, physiological changes that require us to eat cooked food and reveal that we had cooked food. And we don't have any genes for making fire. Like we, it's not in our, like we can't, like if you just take a kid out and it was like, here, go make a fire. They can't do it. And it's hard. Even once you're taught, it's kind of a hard thing to do. Um, but our jaws are too short, uh, sorry, our, jaw, our jaws are too weak and our, uh, our guts are too short for anything other than cooked food. So fire was an energy technology that allowed us to pre-digest food process it in a way that made uh, all of those calories more bioavailable to us. It was the first energy technology. And it's the energy technology that led to a larger brain and, and you know, probably larger groups too. The next uh, energy revolution was a solar technology, not a chemical technology like fire, but a solar technology. And that was agriculture. Agriculture. So we we had the the you know, we constant instead of like walking around trying to find grain or you know, hunting animals, we started to uh, to look after animals and breed them. And we started to plant grain and, and 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 harness the energy of the sun to do it more efficiently. And this allowed us to vastly increase the size of our societies, pushing hunter-gatherers to the margins where they still live, and eventually lay the foundations for the beginning of cities, increasing our collective brain. And then finally, then uh, you know, the last major energy revolution was another chemical revolution, which was uh, the industrial revolution. And I suppose the one after that, following uh, the industrial revolution, was the next green agricultural revolution, where we, through the Haber Bosch process, started to synthesize uh, fertilizer through natural gas and the and the nitrogen in the air, creating ammonia.
0: Yeah, and I, and I want to emphasize here, you 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 alluded to it very quickly. Um, you actually talk about stuff before before humans. Um, it's actually kind of like a global – I mean, in a way, this is a global history. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you allude to like fermentation and then respiration. And so, you know, everyone out there – and I think there's going to be a substantial number of people that took biochemistry or, or you know, something like that or at yeah. least intro biology. You know, as you guys know, um, there's like dark processes like fermentation, um, which they can work without oxygen. Um, and fermentation is super important because, you know, alcohol and all that stuff. Uh, but, um, they're way way less efficient than respiration um uh but the issue with respiration is it needs oxygen, mm-hmm. which, as you note know, in your book, was originally a um dangerous byproduct yeah uh of photosynthesis of you know of um uh, you mad. know cyanobacteria yeah,
1: yeah, that's right, so it led to the first you know mass extinction, the great oxygenation event, and you know people forget like oxygen is corrosive right it's what creates rust and Turns your fruit brown, like bananas and apples brown. So you know one of the one of the big things in the book. You know it's a it's a it's not a it's a very modest title. You know a theory of everyone, and alongside that are are four laws of life. So these are these are not you know they're not like Newtonian laws or something. They are like lenses to view the world, but there's are four things that apply across multiple scales, and they are the law of energy. Uh, that you know this is what life is ultimately uh, you know competing over and trying to capture, and it's what it's what constrains the size of organisms and societies and so on. The law of innovations and efficiency so this is the efficiency with which you can use that energy and then the law of cooperation so you know the scale at which you cooperate trying to find new mechanisms that allow you to cooperate as for example as an organism like you you are um you are less a single organism and more of an amazon rainforest an entire ecosystem and of course if you run out of energy you get weak and you get defeated by lower scales of 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 cooperation such as tumors or, uh, uh, or illness, bacteria and viruses, um, or you get defeated by other more energetic, uh, other humans who take stuff from you, you know? And then finally, the, the law of evolution, which is cultural and genetic evolution, which walks through the space of possibility. So I refer to this kind of space that is created, the amount of energy available to an organism or to a society as being constrained by a, a ceiling created by the EROI, the excess energy, the availability of energy, and a floor created by the efficiency with which you can use that energy. And all activity happens in the space of the possible. And one of the key messages in the book is that the industrial revolution shoved that ceiling so high. And you know, every, economics, for example, came a lot later. And so a lot of the focus has been on improving efficiency, forgetting that there was a ceiling at all. And that ceiling is slowly coming down. So uh, one of the key metrics, for example, is like, okay, look at all the metrics look like this, but if you look at uh, oil discovery rates, in 1919, one barrel of oil got you another thousand barrels, right? In 1950, one barrel got you another hundred, and in 2010, one barrel got you another five. So that means the amount of excess energy—that's ever, you know—that's what—that's what drives economic growth. It's what—it's what has created this positive-sum world in which we all get along. That space is shrinking, and so the only way out is to kind of push that, reach that next level of. of...